Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. Now, would you welcome my favorite person in the world, Wendy, as she comes and speaks to us today. Thank you. Thank you. Hey. Well, you get me today because um, Jeremy is home with his baby girl. Yeah. So last Sunday, a beautiful girl, Lorelai, 7.15 ounces, and she's doing great. They're doing great. So it's wonderful. So, oh, okay, for February, it's at least sunny, but it is one of the least colorful times of the year, isn't it? I mean, the beauty of winter, that whole barrenness, which has some kind of pristine, kind of ethereal feel in December, is just blah in February, isn't it? I mean... And so I call that beige. And in our lives, we all go through seasons of beige. I mean, beige, it can be a nice neutral background, but of all the colors that you could choose from, if I gave you like a really big box of crayons, there's a picture of it. If I gave you that, would the first color you'd pick be beige? Well, no, no. So I teach college classes and there are many slang words that my students use that reinforce my awareness that I am so not cool. Um, and, but when they use the word beige, it, re- it refers to a lot more than just color. So I looked up the Urban Dictionary because, you know, I don't know exactly if they're telling me the truth if I ask them. But so an Urban Dictionary says that beige means a person that is normal to the point of bland. No style, works a nine to five job, does not express their individuality. These people can be found in Starbucks, often wearing neutral color clothes, perhaps from the gap. While sipping a latte and discussing last night's TV shows as if the characters were their friends. In group settings, it can be difficult to tell them apart. Beige people often never stray from their path or their pack. These people commonly experience more eccentric life through others. Um, yeah, so anyway, beige. So anyway, so I was talking to Kristen, who's here, and she does our graphics. And she, um, she was like, oh, you mean like those memes about white girls? And so she sent me a whole bunch of them, and so I picked one. Like basic white girls in their natural habitat, you know? Anyway, yeah. All, everybody likes pumpkin spice, right? So anyway, but it highlights that point that beige is neutral. I mean, normal to the point of bland. And so living our faith can feel like this. You know, you're doing the right things. Maybe you're going to church, you're reading your Bible, or at least getting a spiritual quote from somebody you follow on Twitter. Um, or you may even attend a small group and volunteer. Yet you would describe your, say, your faith as like beige. Your spiritual life seems a little bit more flat or boring. But we all long for more. And when we read the Bible, beige is not the color that we would use to describe Jesus and the life that his followers led. So last week, Ross talked about how rest is critical to our lives. He encouraged us to be like Jesus, that even when things are busy and going strong, to take time to withdraw to the lonely places for solitude. I mean, Ross went on to say, you don't need to fear going to those lonely places, even if you're trying to avoid some difficult thoughts or feelings. Because it's God's invitation to enter into his rest. Because it brings refreshment. Now, many of us may believe this to be true, but gosh, it is so not always easy to do, is it? Like when I think about my own relationship with God, as well as many conversations that I have with friends and family, I often hear really conflicting thoughts and feelings about having this quiet time with God. I'll hear quiet time. I never experience God there. I read my Bible and it's just that. I read it and I check it off my list. Or I hear other people say that when they try to have a quiet time, it accentuates their pain, that sense of being alone. 
One person described it to me like, you're telling me to go to a fishing pond and keep fishing, and yet I never get a fish. Now that sounds worse than beige. So today, no matter where you're at with God, you're feeling close and connected, you're distant or disappointed, or maybe you're not even sure that God's real, let's look at what the Bible says our relationship with God can look like, and then how do we get there? So let's pray. God, I just thank you that you are a God of just depth and wisdom, and you're full of life and color. I just ask that you would help highlight the places in our lives that you want us to have more and more of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so what kind of relationship do God, does God really want with you? Now, our relationship with God has many aspects. He's a father. He's a creator. He's a judge. He's a master. He's a redeemer, and he's our savior. He's so many things, but the one that we're going to focus on today most is that hard-to-believe role when God says, I want you to be my friend. So now I I know that can sound a little cheesy, like I'm saying, Jesus is your BFF and we need to go get a t-shirt. You know, what does it really mean when the Bible says God calls us friends? We have to go back to the original design, right? To know for sure what kind of relationship does God want to have with us. And so we know that after God created Adam and Eve, he said that they were very good, which also means delightful. So we know that God delighted them. And we know Adam and Eve had an incredibly close relationship with God. I mean, just imagine what that would have been like. They walked with God uninhibited. I mean, they were freely communicating with them. There was no, they had, they were free of fear, sin, sickness. There was no distractions. They never, ever felt like I don't measure up, like I'm not good enough to be close to God. Both Adam and Eve loved God and they knew that God loved them. I mean, can you imagine the laughter and the sense of awe that they had as they discovered new sights and new sounds and new tastes? I mean, God must have smiled as his kids just explored his creation. Adam and Eve were were made to live in God's presence continually. You are made to live in God's presence continually. God didn't create you because he was lonely. God didn't need you because he was fully satisfied with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But he wanted you. And God created you because he wanted to love you. The Bible says that God is love. He's not just loving. He is the essence of love. And if he wasn't love, you wouldn't be able to love. There would be no love between any of us. And because he created you in his image, there is love. And he he created you to simply love you. Like how many, we see it on a smaller picture, but how many of you just get a lot of pleasure from kids? At least most of the time you get pleasure, right? Um, But in even a bigger way, God does that. You know, um, he doesn't take pleasure only when you're doing something spiritual, like feeding the homeless or reading your Bible or confessing your sins. But when you're doing the everyday things of life, he gets pleasure by you being you. Because how many of us have snuck into that our kids' room at late at night I try not to do it because my kids are older now, but it'd be a little creepy. But I, I, I mean, we just love to go in at night and we just say they're peaceful and they're breathing and we just soak it up. I mean, they have our hearts just to watch them. God gets that and more. He gets pleasure by watching you be you. And the Apostle Paul describes God's purpose for creating us in, an, in, in this way. He says, long before he laid down the earth's foundations, He, God, had us in mind and had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. God had and continues to have us in mind, and we are the focus of his love. 
in Genesis 1:28, it was talking about um, God entered into a very special relationship with people. He spoke to Adam and Eve. With the rest of creation, he spoke it into being. But with Adam and Eve, he spoke to them directly. He created relationships. And as humans, we have this really unique relationship with them. And then even after Adam and Eve sinned, what did God do? He searched for them and he found them. You know, they rejected him, but he didn't reject them. He could have destroyed them, started over again. He didn't. He looked for them, he found them, and he spoke to them. Sin broke the relationship and the fellowship. The friendship with God got lost. But Paul gives us more clarity on God's heart toward bringing friendship back into focus. And so here's one more. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. He not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. The heart of the gospel and discipleship is God reconciling things all the way back to the way that they should be. So our spiritual growth focuses on us returning to the life that God created for people to live. Like, you know, in what we see in the Old Testament, priests had to prepare for weeks and sometimes months to get to go and be ready to go into God's presence. But Jesus changed that whole situation so radically. Remember when Jesus was on that cross, the very moment he died in the temple, that veil that kept everyone out in the Holy of Holies, that was ripped from top to bottom. It was saying boldly that all of us have full access to God. Jesus made that possible. And we don't need a priest to go talk with God. We can go directly to him. Paul explains that a little bit more in Romans. He says, for since our friendship was with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. We are friends that is restored. There's nothing we can do to earn it. And then, I'm sorry, I'm sort of weird on the, um, so many scriptures today, but I just, another one. Jesus tells us, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I've made known to you. And this Greek word for friend in this scripture, it communicates a deep, close, intimate comrade. It would be like the person that you have, the best man that you have for your wedding. It's the same Greek word that's also used to describe the king's inner circle. So like a king can have a million of people who know about him, but there's only a few in his inner circle. And that's what God wants. He wants you in his close circle. He calls you friend. I mean, you just have to, I mean, let it sink in. The God of the universe wants you for a friend. So God wants that. How much do we want that? You know, when we were in the Advent series, we really focused a lot on on Hosea. It was the whole story. And it really was pronounced how much God pursued and loved. And here it's when he says in Hosea 6, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. God is saying, I don't want your offerings. I really, I want you. I want you to know me. I want a relationship with you. Rick Warren, who you might know as a pastor and the author of The Purpose Driven Life, he describes how he approaches friendship with God by making it his purpose in life is to know and love God. That's his number one priority. 
So he does this where he gets out of, before he ever gets out of bed in the morning, he prays, dear God, it's another day. If I don't get anything else done today, I want to know and love you better. So his, his approach is like, if this day ends and it sucked, it was horrible, full of grief and problems. I sinned and everything goes wrong. Yet I knew and loved God. It was a successful, good day. It wasn't wasted. But if it was a day where I accomplished a lot, I achieved and I made money, but I didn't know or love God more, I missed the main purpose for my day. We're designed for relationship and we are designed for friendship with God. So how do we deepen and refresh our relationship with God? So I'm going to have three main points and I'm not going to spend a long time on the first one. But just like if we're going to try to develop anything where we want to grow, we need to develop habits, right? There's many different spiritual habits that are beneficial to develop. And my goal right now is not to overwhelm you with them, um, but just to be more aware. And usually when we do spiritual habits, we want to do them in our temperament. That's sort of our natural way of connecting with God. So how do you, with your temperament, connect most easily with God? Now, a few years back and in some other groups, we've talked about different ways people connect with God. And there's a really good book by Gary Thomas called Sacred Pathways. And so it's a sort of a summary of all the different ways that people are naturally bent to connect. And so if you ever went just to Google and you put Chi Alpha Discipleship Tools, you will get this. It's a long PDF and it has a really fun, good assessment for you to know clearly like, oh, this is more how I'm, I'm wired and gives you some fun ideas of what to do with your relationship with God. So, but I just wanted to review just a couple of them. Like people that are naturalists, they love God by being out of doors. So nature naturally replenishes them and helps them to connect with God. So take your Bible, get out in the beauty or get up before the sun rises and watch it. That would be really refreshing to your soul. Sensates, they love God through their senses. Um, the five senses. So they want the majestic and the grand and they like music and they like smells. So get a place where there's candles and good, good smells and, and good just to have that little place maybe in your home, that would be a good way for a sensate to connect. A traditionalist, they love God more through ritual and symbol. So they tend to have a little more discipline kind of life. Um, sometimes others of us think that it feels a little bit rigid or um, legalistic, but for them, rituals are very meaningful. So maybe for them, it would be like reading a psalm in the morning and reading it at night. Then there's ascetics. They um, love God in solitude and simplicity. They want to be alone in prayer. They don't want to have any distractions, no pictures, definitely no loud music. So take away the noise of the outside world. You know, worship, maybe you have to get up earlier in the morning and stay up later at night. And then there's an activist. There are people that really connect with God more through confrontation. They're more energized by interaction with others, even conflicts. They actually feel spiritually nourished through battle. And they can tend to sometimes see the world in more issues that are more black and white. You know, I was trying to think of some recent examples of people engaging in activism, but you know, I don't know. I, I haven't, on another real note, I, I, I haven't been watching the news lately, but anyway, but is there something that in them, you know, they're, they're drawn to be a part of a cause. So if this is part of the way you connect with God, become involved in a social or a Christian cause and then assess afterwards. Is this drawing me closer to God and others, or does it pull me more away? Then there's a caregiver, and those are the people that love God by loving others. It's just the way, it's not a chore, it's a form of worship. So adopt someone, you know, um, take a kid in from the neighborhood and care for them or an elderly person. 
An enthusiast, oh my, these, they love God with mystery and celebration. They're our cheerleaders. They love to be expressive and clap their hands, shout amen. They like to dance. And those of us are that, that aren't quite that way, they're like, tone, tone it down. Uh, but this is the way they connect. So they, they don't want to just know it. They want to experience and feel it. So if you're also trying to cultivate mystery, somebody who's an enthusiast, ask God to bring someone in your path that whom you can share or start having a conversation with a stranger mystery and the last two contemplatives they love god through adoration so it's not so much about focusing on oh god i want to accomplish great things with you um but they want to just love him in that purest and deepest sense and then intellectuals they love god with the mind they feel closest to god when they're first understanding something new about him so listen to sermons while you're driving read theology books so those are just some of the ways that people are naturally bent but if you are wanting to like refresh in your relationship with god sometimes it's good to look at some of the ways other people connect and try some of those and um and see how it refreshes your relationship so develop habits first point second point is i knew i started realizing this point when i was having kids i was really nervous to have them and so i what did we do we we talked to every parent that we know and try to get the best tips possible you know but better than any kind of approach to parenting that i had was this one point Make sure to keep the communication going. You know, there's so many different ways to parent. It can be more structured or disciplined. You can be more laid back. But regardless, keep the communication going. Because, you know, you're going to have to establish boundaries and give consequences. But you want to do so in a way that keeps that communication happening. You know, you keep pursuing them. What are they thinking and feeling? You want to do it with the day-to-day stuff, right? Because day-to-day stuff leads to you being able to be there for bigger conversations. And the same thing goes true with God. No matter many, no matter how many mistakes or successes, above all, keep your communication going with God. I mean, that's one of the reasons why solitude is so important, right? We need time to communicate. If when with our friends and the ones that are really important for us, we give them our full attention. And you don't develop friends in your spare time. So if God is going to be your close friend, he's got to be a big priority. Now, some of you will say, like, Wendy, I know that's a really good idea. But you're one of those people that's that's feeling like that I'm going to a fish in, in this pond and there's no fish there. And you could get irritated when I tell you to do that. You say, I've tried talking with God, but I'm not experiencing him at all. Now, if your family or friend was saying that to you, what would you say? You know, sometimes I'll hear people say, well, just buck up. Eventually, your relationship with God will be better. You know, and, and really, it's not always about the emotions and the feeling him. And there's truth to that. Yeah, but just telling someone to buck up, keep doing the discipline, um, it may not be as helpful as trying to figure out how are you communicating with God and where are some glitches happening. Because I think, I mean, it's just hard. It's hard to have a time alone with God with all the technology and having to set down our phones. And so sometimes it can be so easy to be distracted. But when you talk with God, what do you talk about? The Psalms are great. They teach us how we can talk with God and how he speaks back. The Psalms are like real friends talking because it's so much more than just the basics that they talk about. Good communication has us talking with God about all of life. And if you're not talking to God about all of the life, you're probably disconnecting from him. So the Psalms prove how good communication leads to increasing trust. Because once you say every friendship is built on trust and the difference between a friend and acquaintance is talk and trust. Like sometimes we can talk with an acquaintance, but you trust your friends, right? And if you talk to someone, but you don't trust them, 
that's not a friend, right? That's an acquaintance. And so the bedrock to every friendship and healthy relationships is trust. So what do you talk about with God? And is this talk leading you to more trust? Because sometimes if we find ourselves talking more in our head, more talking to other people than to God, we're going to just pull away. We're not going to be as connected with him. Another way that we can see ourselves disconnecting from God, and it's one big, huge, flashing yellow warning light, and I fall into this so often, but it's worry. What is worry? It's really acting like God doesn't exist and that it's all up to me. The outcome is all my responsibility. It's just so easy to forget. There are like 7,000 promises in the Bible where God has agreed to help to take care of your needs. Taking those worries to God and talking to him about it. I love Psalm 55, and you guys probably know it. Cast all your cares on him because he's going to sustain you. He will not let the righteous slip or fall. Do you know what that word cast means? I thought it was more like when you cast, like fishing, like when we, you know, the little bit that fishing and then you pull it back in. But this casting means to throw it, to dump it. You don't pull it back. And that's what God wants to do because he cares for us. Tim Keller had this, made it really clear for me when he said, worry is not believing God will get it right. And bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. You know, I know for many of us, it's been a pretty tough and disappointing year, and it is just so easy to see how bitterness can creep in. And despite that, I have been so blessed by hearing so many people talking through the pain that they've had, and they keep that communication going with God no matter how messy it seems. You know, I've also been think, thought a lot about Rick Warren, who after his son killed himself, he just took four months where he just spent with his wife and God alone, and he just listened and he talked. And afterwards, he says, you can't spend that much time with God and not be, not have it change you. And the one thing that he learned is that the more honest to God you are, the deeper your friendship will be. God can handle our frankness and our accusations, our cries. I mean, out of the 150 psalms that he gave us, one-third of them are laments. And a, ment, and a lament is like, God, life stinks. God, I hate this. He doesn't turn a deaf ear when we start to complain. He loves you being authentic and honest. And you're never going to have a deep relationship with God until you're gut honest with your fears, your flaws, and everything in your life. So when you're hurting, talk with God because it keeps you from, from being bitter. Right? Bitterness is the number one enemy of our friendship with God. And sometimes we don't even have words. We have only tears. Tears are the language of the soul. And when tears are turned toward God, they are a psalm. They have so much value, so much that when it says in in Psalm 56, 8, it says, God keeps our tears in a bottle, and he writes each one in his book. That has blessed me so much this year. Like, Ross doesn't know all the tears that that I've cried this year, but God values each one of those. I mean, that is so awesome. So the third point is... um, we can refresh, refresh our relationship with God through obedience. So I don't know about you, but when I hear the word obedience, I just feel a little bit heavy right away. It's like, oh my gosh, there are so many places in my life that are problematic. And I want to do better, but I just don't even know if I have the energy or the willpower to even want to change. So I want to look briefly at obedience and see if we can see it from a little bit different perspective. So let me ask you. When is the last time that you sensed your relationship with God was really alive? 
So the response I usually get when I ask that is like, well, when I was on a retreat or when I was on a mission trip. And that would make total sense, wouldn't it? Because why, when you're there on that retreat or the mission trip, you're able to be more focused on God. You're wondering, like, what is he up to and how can I participate? But that's our challenge. Like, how do we live our everyday life with that same kind of expectation? So one simple way would be, just like um, Sam was, you know, referring to, would be to follow your nudges. Practice something that you're reasonably certain that Jesus wants you to do. Like when you're going through the day, you know, asking God for direction. Like, how do I care for this person? Or, you know, how I'm seeing that person sitting alone at lunch. Follow that nudge and go with it and see what happens. Because if you feel like God brings someone to mind, you can call them, you can text them. It jump starts and refreshes your relationship with God when you join his mission, when you do things that he's up to. The next, But the next question is a little bit more heavy. And there's a truth in it that I want to be able to pull out because when we are falling into this, our faith can become really beige. Can you remember the last time that you had a sense that God was wanting you to do something and you didn't do it? Maybe it was, maybe you were certain that God wanted you to serve or care or give or like what, you know, Sam was talking about to give financially even. And, but you didn't think it was like, ah, I don't think so. If so, you can go right back and say, God, I'm sorry. I want to follow through with this the next time. But another response to that question would be, um, like, you knew God was asking you to look at an issue in your life, but you didn't want to follow through. So, like, maybe he was asking you, like, to ask for forgiveness for being a jerk to somebody. Or where you took credit at work and it wasn't something that you did. So both issues, choosing to ignore those nudges to practice what you think God wants you to participate in, or not falling through and recognizing sin and dealing with it, they're all about obedience, Right? Obedience doesn't have to be heavy, but it's definitely a part of friendship. Because Jesus said, if you are my friends, you, you will obey me. And now we are friends with God that doesn't make us, that surely does not make us equal to him. You know, if there's a king and I become his friend, you know, I could be close, I could share confidences, but I'm not the king. I may have more privileges, but I still have to do what the king says, right? I can't say I'm a follower of Jesus and do what I want to do. Yet, on the other hand, I sometimes see people say, well, you've got to just obey God, do the right things. And they forget the truth that God says, um, I've called you to be more than a servant, right? He calls us to be friends. So obedience without communication is more about servanthood than friendship. So to avoid blandness and lifeless Christianity, we want to look like, how can we obey God? How do you, why do you obey God? Is it out of fear, guilt? duty, obligation. Jesus wants us to see obedience a little bit differently. In this verse, it says, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is our final point regarding refreshing our relationship with God. But God wants us to obey because it keeps us in his love and leads to joy. So the third point is we let go of sin and embrace joy. I don't know. I never really put the two together that clearly. But the first time I remember seeing this combination of obedience and joy was a a few years ago. One of our kids asked to talk with Ross and myself about something serious. And that just made my heart drop. I'm like, oh my goodness, what is she going to tell me? You know, she was about 14 at the time and we had to wait to the end of the day. But she says, I need to get with you and dad and I need to talk about something. 
And so she gave us permission to share, so I can. But waiting was so hard because at her age, okay, when my parents were out one night, I stole their car. I went joyriding with my friends. And in my um, not-so-fully-developed adolescent brain, I thought, I've driven a tractor. I can do this car thing. Um, I didn't realize that it is, it is a little more different, you know. I didn't realize that turning a car at 40 miles an hour is, is, is scary. It is scary. You know, um, I almost slipped into the ditch and it kept me, I was going to try to turn around and go back home, but I didn't know how to turn around. So I went across a four lane freeway. I mean, I, I do not know. I went and got my friend finally. I do not know how anybody was not harmed. It was, but the grace of God, right? You know, so anyway, and after a couple hours I went home, but I knew I needed to tell my parents as soon as possible because I lived in a small town. Okay. Yeah. And I was driving around in a small town thinking like I was going to keep this quiet. I don't know what I was thinking anyway. And so, but I told my parents and it wasn't because I was remorseful because I knew I needed to get ahead of these consequences. So, um, and my parents were pretty strict. I was grounded for an entire summer. I didn't get to get my license till I was 17. So I'm in this mode thinking, what is my daughter going to share? You know, so, so back to her, she confesses then to us for years that she had kept something hidden. Something that she had done over and over again in her early grade school years. And so through tears, she told us that numerous times when we had told her to brush her teeth, she did not. (laughs) And I just remember like, I was trying so hard not to laugh because I'm like, seriously, it's no big deal. You know, what's your problem? Um, But it was such a big deal to her. I mean, she was really upset. God was pulling at her heart, letting her know there were some areas that he wanted to repent from and walk free from. She experienced joy and joy in obedience. And that repentance led her to freedom and, you know, developed more trust between her dad and I. Seriously, a lot more trust. Um, Like her, her biggest regret was that she didn't tell us sooner. But it was this attitude that she had toward repentance that was like, why do I resist repenting? You know, why am I hesitant to repent if I'm going to experience that kind of freedom? I was raised Lutheran, and in order to be a part of our confirmation, you you have to quote Luther at least once every time you speak. So I do have one Luther quote, and I think it really speaks to this. He said, um, and he really believes strongly, that the whole life of a believer should be one of repentance. I want to live that more. Because we're going to sin, and we're going to continue to make make mistakes. So rather than keep it covered, be open, listen, repent. Because God is not saying in a mean way, what is this in your life? You know, he's saying, you know, what is this in your life? And we say, God, this is sin. You know, forgive me. I I don't want to continue in this. We can know that we can be forgiven and walk without any condemnation. Another real problem though I experience when trying to figure out this whole obedience thing is that there's this belief that obedience is all about our willpower, our own ability to be strong and self-sufficient. And our relationship with God can be very dull and lifeless quickly that when we think that in order to grow spiritually, we just need to stop doing certain behavior, that we need to suck it up, make good choices all on our own strength and our own willpower. And that's not biblical. We are not designed to just white knuckle things all on our own. We can't, you know, be it's drinking or, you know, um, eating or or being crazy. Like I've known some people that are really, really determined, strong-willed people and eventually willpower fails. That just stop it attitude, it just doesn't work. We have many, we may have the most sincere intentions to stay calm and caring, but what happens? Even though our will is strong, we do the opposite. 
we lose our temper. We become that crazy one, right? Paul doesn't hold to that belief of just stop it either. Instead, he says, I do not understand what I do. What? For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. So it's not that we don't give it our all, that we don't put forth a ton of effort. But it is crazy to think that our only hope is on us for our own ability to make right choices. That we can just make a commitment to never do it again and that's going to work. Because the problem with taking that, I can change by my sheer willpower approach, is that it makes an idol of the will. And that's something God never intended. Our will is strengthened by relationship with him. Our change happens in relationship with him. So if we depend upon our willpower alone, we're going to fail. We are denying the power of that relationship that Jesus wants to provide with us. It's important to make good choices and do right things, but um, we will not, if that was true, that we could do it on our own way, we certainly would not have needed a Savior. And the Bible could have ended at Exodus 20 when God gave us the Ten Commandments, right? Because we could have done it on our own sheer strength. God does not depend upon your willpower or your commitment to transform a hopeless situation. He always has a way out. God transforms us in relationship and in our dependency upon him. And to live in that obedience, it really, it keeps us free because we sense God is asking us, we just address it. We don't let sins pile up. And that's that, that beige Christianity can be so dangerous because before you know it, that, that beigeness, we start heaping up and accumulating more baggage and more baggage unconfessed sins, unresolved issues, hurts, resentments that you can't love, let go of, those are dangerous. Old, unresolved sins make you susceptible to new sins. So maybe it just started as just being curious, and then more and more you got drawn into that Internet site, drawn into sin, and it piles up more guilt. And then the weight becomes so heavy that you become more crippled, or you just say, like, I don't even think I, I, I can't do it. I can't fight it anymore. You know, it's so easy to rationalize our behavior. Like, I know, but I know I shouldn't be daydreaming about the guy, that guy, but my husband, he's just so unaffectionate. I know I shouldn't watch that movie, but I feel starved starved for romance. I know I shouldn't be having another drink, but it helps dull the disappointment. I know I shouldn't be flirting with my coworker, but it feels good to be noticed. I shouldn't gossip or stretch the truth because I want people to affirm me. I know I shouldn't go into a debt, debt for a new TV, but the Super Bowl is today, right? Um, do you guys remember that tragic sinking of that South Korean ship in just 2014? Here's that picture of it. It was carrying three times the amount of weight that it was built for, which caused it to ride so much lower in the water than it was ever meant to do. And so when the captain tried to make a turn, the weight shifted and the whole ship capsized. It was carrying 476 people, mostly high school students. 304 of them died. And that's such a picture of like what we do with our burdens. There are burdens that we are built to bear. And then there are those that we are not built to bear. And sin and shame are not burdens that we can carry. Jesus is meant to carry those. He bore everything on the cross. So we can't let, we can't let the sins pile up. God wants you to bring those sins to him because if you don't get rid of those sins, you will capsize. So in closing, it seemed really right that it happened to be the first Sunday of the month because this is when we do communion. We celebrate. Because what does communion mean? It means fellowship. 
we get to participate in reenacting Jesus' invitation to his followers of how he was going to reestablish our relationship with God. That relationship that we lost in the fall when Adam and Eve chose to sin, communion shows us that God is utterly determined to not wait until he comes again. He wants for us now to experience that continual communion with him. So what was broken in the garden through sin, he is reestablished in Jesus' perfect work on the cross. You know, my, my closest friend and prayer buddy for the last 18 years, we were talking and she has been switching up her quiet time her daily quiet time this year by using communion. And I thought, well, gosh, that's cool. But every day that would be maybe a little boring. I don't know. But for her, it really is cool because it is, you know, in communion, we do this heart check. You know, we take this time to say, God, is there anything between me and you? We take that time when we repent and we ask him for forgiveness. And then we remember how rightly we are aligned with God in his friendship. Everyone is welcome to take communion as a sign that you desire to be in a relationship with Jesus. So you get to take the bread and take the juice. And what I'd encourage you today, you get to rip off um, a piece yourself or you can take the, there's gluten-free option. But when you get that, either take a little bit of time before you go up for communion or after you take it and you've got that bread, I'd encourage you to sit with it just for a little bit. Ask God, is there anything in me that's keeping me from a closer relationship with you? Let yourself know that If there's any way, big or small, let him touch that place and give it to him. Because picture this. This is his invitation to you. Because when Jesus lifted up the bread, he says, this is my body and it is given for you. And he took up the glass and he said, this is my blood and it's shed for you. Let's pray. Well, God, we are so, so grateful that you have reconciled us to yourself. Lord, we love that we have a relationship with you. Show us anything in our heart that is keeping us from you, as we want to know you more. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest's podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.